2: So, guys, I have a very important question for you. If you could choose between having a blue check mark on Twitter or a blue exclamation point, which would you rather have?
0: I actually want to have blue exclamation points, not just on Twitter, but in life. Like, I oh. want certain people to be sentenced to carry a blue exclamation point with them wherever they go to be publicly marked as bullshitters.
2: Ooh, so they, and they constantly look surprised while they're wearing the
0: <laughs> Yeah, or it's just like, look out for this asshole. Like, I want Matt Lauer to have to carry a blue
3: exclamation point wherever he goes.
0: Ooh, I like
3: it. I'd like like a blue asterisk or something, right? Just like a little, you know, read the fine print. Like a blue asterisk, like see below.
2: Two asterisks if it's really, really straining belief. I get a blue question mark. Just walk around confused all the time. Well, how would that be any different from your normal day?
0: (laughs) But everyone would know he's confused. Everyone knows already.
2: Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the blue exclamation point edition. I just realized, does that mean this entire podcast episode is complete bullshit?
3: (laughs) No, this <laughs> is the good kind of blue exclamation oh, okay. point. Sorry. It's a green exclamation point.
0: <laughs> it's going to earn a blue E for explicit. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we we get a black E on many of our podcast episodes. <laughs> so throw your question marks, your semicolons. Just let us have it. Podcasting Does not even
0: count as an expletive anymore?
2: I mean, it's a real thing, and more on real TV. than you know. <clears throat> oh well, then that's not explicit. Children can hear it at all hours of the day. Fucking bullshit. Then oh, Ben, we were <laughs> okay, doing. Now we have so our damn it
0: Thank you, Ben. Shit,
2: I'm here in the virtual blue exclamation studio with my good friends Ben Wittis, tamar Kaufman Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys.
3: Hi. Hi Shane. Hey Shane. For those
2: who for those who don't know yet, you'll you'll find this out in the episode, but uh the blue exclamation point now equals serious problems with your facts. And you might want to check your facts, uh, which we're gonna get into on the podcast this week. Uh before I do that, did everyone have a good Memorial Day?
1: Uh sure. Well the president wished us happy Memorial Day, and so of Was it on Twitter? Know- Yeah, so we had to have a happy Memorial Day because the president wished us
2: one. Did it get a blue exclamation point?
1: I don't think so. But I took, you know, a new cannon out and fired it. And so I I had a very
2: good Memorial Day. You exclaimed. Yes, with emphasis.
3: I feel like just like weekends are not different from weeks now, like holiday weekends. It's just all one blur.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Time has no meaning anymore. Time has a big blue question mark on it. On the podcast this week, Twitter starts fact-checking President Trump with blue exclamation points as social media companies face calls to ramp up their election security efforts. China again encroaches on Hong Kong, this time using the pandemic as cover. And the judge in Michael Flynn's case is told to explain his delay in granting a motion to dismiss. Uh, Let us start with the blue exclamation point at hand. News this week, actually this was last night, right? This was Tuesday, that Twitter is going to start flagging Trump tweets, and I suppose this will mean other tweets, we shall see, uh, that are factually In dispute or just bullshit, Uh, the one that they actually chose to flag related to, and I'll go ahead and read it here for everyone, uh, to his, yet again, his his false claims about mail-in ballots being linked to voter fraud. He said, there is no way, zero, that mail-in ballots will be anything less than substantially fraudulent mailboxes will be robbed, ballots will be forged and even illegally printed out and fraudulently signed. And then he goes on and on. Uh, and then there is a blue exclamation point with get the facts about mail and ballots that Twitter has appended to the tweet. And it is impossible to miss. It's, it's just so we're clear. It's right there and you can see it. Um, so, Tammy, first question to you on this. Is this the bare minimum that Twitter can do and perhaps not something that we should be so quick to celebrate I would also note that they have not put a blue exclamation point on Trump's demonstrably false claims that Joe Scarborough may have murdered a former aide. Uh, the widower of that young woman actually wrote directly to Jack Dorsey this week in a gut wrenching letter saying essentially that the president is exploiting the memory of my dead wife and this is horrible and you should put a stop to it. Or is this move from Twitter like a significant signal that they're going to start policing their platform? Which is something that you know countless experts have been urging them to do, particularly as we head into the election.
0: Yeah, look, I I will start from the position that I think this was a very fraught choice for Twitter, um, no matter what they chose to do. And actually, what they've done here does not explicitly label the president's tweet false it just says, get the facts about mail-in ballots, implying that there are some facts. We're not going to tell you how they relate to what you're reading, but if you would like to know them, click here. And of course, you know, if you are the kind of person who's inclined to take the president at his word, you're probably not going to click anyway. And if he were labeled, you know, as explicitly having tweeted something false, that probably wouldn't bother you anyway. So, As a practical matter, you know, what difference does it make? A lot of the people who were unhappy with this decision by Twitter were unhappy because they thought it didn't go far enough. They want Twitter to delete presidential tweets that are false. Some people want Twitter to ban the president for having violated its terms of service. And there they lose me because I think it's really, as a practical matter, Impossible to de platform the President of the United States he 's going to speak. he has a bully pulpit to speak whether he's tweeting from his own account or not. What he says is going to end up on Twitter because it is one of the places in our society where people talk about what they hear, and he 's the president so i I think that they can 't you know just boot him off the site or delete his tweets. I think that as a society. We have to continue to struggle with what this man who is our president has to say. But what I do, the reason that I think they felt compelled to, to move on this particular instance as opposed to any other is that this was about voting. And there's such a focus among the tech companies on election security, election integrity, the role that they played in 2016 and not wanting to fall into the trap of being tools of those who are trying to undermine confidence in our electoral system. So saying mail-in ballots are, are going to be a source of fraud is a statement that goes right to the heart of el- election security and the sort of myths that were propagated in 2016. And so I think they felt like they had to find a way to nip that in the bud. I guess the final thing I'll say is this isn't going to be nearly enough for the people who have been pushing tech companies to do more in this regard. And frankly, I don't think that any of the reactive stuff like flagging a tweet or on Facebook flagging something that looks like fake news, none of that is going to be enough um, until the tech companies find a way to proactively cultivate fact-based conversations and elevate good information over bad information, I think that they're going to continue to come under criticism.
3: Susan. You know, I, I I agree with everything Tammy said. I mean, I, I think this is sort of a purely optics move by by Twitter, just like I think sort of Facebook's fact-checking, um, while well-intentioned, is, is more sort of about optics over actual substance in part because, you know, look, there isn't a lot of evidence that demonstrates that fact-checking works, that it actually changes people's minds, that it meaningfully sort of influences or addresses the problem. And I think this is sort of, we're reaching, an impasse um, that I think we've been headed for really since the earliest days of kind of the Russia investigation in 2016. And that's that we had this conversation about disinformation as being about foreign interference and foreign voices. And you know, the tools that we saw Robert Mueller bring to bear against, uh, you know, Russian disinformation and election interference were really sort of tied to this notion of prohibitions on foreign intervention. And the place that that was always going to eventually come up short was that there was going to be domestic disinformation campaigns and The ability to control the speech of individuals who are constitutionally entitled to participate and are doing so at least sort of in in the authentic sense of being who they actually are and presenting their true identities. The idea that you can really, really meaningfully sort of police disinformation within that context while setting sort of objective and universally legitimate criteria, that was always going to be a mess that was always going to sort of come up short. And so, you know, I I think now we're in the little bit of this bizarre situation in which we've essentially outsourced to these big giant tech companies, sort of the the policing function and the, and the function of deciding, right, what what merits a fact check, what are legitimate news outlets, right? So one of the things Facebook is immediately putting its sort of foot in its mouth is crediting places like The Daily Caller or Breitbart or right other sort of organizations, news organizations that are not deemed as legitimate because, of course, you want to appear unbiased and not biased against conservative media. So, you know, I, I think it's the current situation is a complete mess. It's completely non-responsive to the actual issues at hand. And it was completely foreseeable that eventually we were going to find ourselves in this moment because we have always sort of been headed in this direction from the earliest days. And so you know with that sort of broad based critique, I, I would say that I don't I don't have any better ideas, right? Whenever you're talking about the president of the United States openly lying to the American public and the American public lacking the tools to meaningfully evaluate and assess that information and sort of conventional media fundamentally not being able to to sort of address that. You know, I, I think the idea that now Twitter or Facebook or anybody else can step in and and fix it with a label is, is it was just always going to be inadequate.
1: So I have a I think Dimmer view of what Twitter did yesterday than the two of you guys do. Because to me, what they have effectively done is they have set a standard now where any tweet that does not have a blue check mark, we have to say somehow does not rise to the level of falsehood that would warrant one. And so that includes, as Shane described, uh, scandalously lying about Joe Scarborough as a murderer. It includes the average tweet from the president, to be honest, as, you know, contains a false statement. And, you know, what Twitter seems to be saying is that there's kind of multiple levels of falsity. Um, There's, you know, false, but we don't care. There's false, but we care enough to slap a blue check mark so when when Trump tweets, which he did seven hours ago, apparently, Obamagate makes Watergate look like small potatoes, a statement for which there it contains layers and layers of falsehood in it, Obamagate, which of course doesn't exist, and it certainly doesn't make Watergate look like small potatoes and Twitter does not put a blue check mark on that what are they saying and and so i think it is actually a little bit worse than than this i think what they're saying is that there's you know some level of falsehood that we will help the president propagate and some level of falsehood that will attach but we're not going to tell you what the standards are for for one versus the other and so You know, the president's also six hours ago tweeted psycho Joe Scarborough is rattled, not only because of his bad ratings, but all of the things and facts that are coming out on the internet about opening a cold case. He knows what's happening. Now, how is that not worse than the one that they put a blue check mark on, uh, a blue uh, uh, exclamation mark on? So I I actually think it's sufficiently incoherent as to be misleading in the sense that the president could can plausibly say, "Well, Twitter doesn't think I'm lying about Joe
0: Scarborough." Yeah, I think Ben's Ben's right that that is the absolute danger. I also think that so you know if we if we properly understand what they're doing here, they are flagging false facts specifically related to election procedure. <laughs> That's what they've done here. And we have no evidence that they have an intention to do anything more than that. Going back to Susan's point about, you know, not having any better ideas about what Facebook or Twitter or these guys could do. I did want to flag this uh, story in the Wall Street Journal today that reports on an internal study and brainstorming group within Facebook about how they could cultivate more civil dialogue on their platform, how they could alter their algorithms and practices to reduce the extent to which they are contributing to polarization and divisiveness. And the Wall Street Journal article tells the story of how all of this was shelved because it had clear implications by way of reducing user engagement with the site and potentially threatening profits
2: just as a final thought on this you know if if i'm not exactly clear what twitter's goal is in putting these exclamation points on here i mean if you are likely to take the president at his word and think everything he says is gospel. It strikes me that Twitter telling you he's wrong isn't going to change your mind. And if you think that much of what the president says is off base and false, you don't need Twitter to tell you that that's the case. Um, So it's just, it's not entirely clear. But one thing I do want to note is um, if the effort was to somehow chasten the president from tweeting uh, outlandish and fake things, as Ben pointed out, it didn't stop him. And we should also note that he directly took aim at Twitter uh, yesterday, uh, and said Twitter is now interfering in the 2020 presidential election. So he's saying that they are engaged in election interference. They are saying my statement on mail in ballots, which will lead to massive corruption and fraud, is incorrect, based on fact checking by fake news CNN and the Amazon Washington Post. Twitter is completely stifling free speech, all caps, and I, as president, will not allow it to happen. Uh, Probably goes without saying for listeners of the podcast, the president cannot stop Twitter from posting things that it wants to post. Um, But, you know, this is clearly triggered him. And it just strikes me that it's kind of an ill formed policy And a sort of toe in the water by Twitter that is only going to set him off even more and then raise even more questions about how it's going to rein him in because he is, as you said, been tweeting about Joe Scarborough and Obamagate and tweets from KT McFarland and stuff from Greg Jarrett all day. I mean, it's just like it's just yet again a flood of grievances and and recriminations. Uh, So clearly he's paying attention.
3: I think your point about what are they hoping to accomplish and whether it's about sort of chastening the president, you know, there is one function that this kind of fact checking, when done correctly, actually can provide. And that's that whenever you have the president of the United States sort of flooding the zone with disinformation, even among people who are aware that what he's saying is probably not true or there's something off about it, um, there's a huge sort of truth tax, right? The ability to get down to the actual fact of it, why specifically it's wrong, that's hard to do. It takes a lot of time. And Whenever the president specifically tweets something, a right-wing media ecosystem tends to intervene to then create lots and lots of content to to justify uh, or support the assertion. And it can make it really, really difficult for people who actually just want context um, uh, and to sort of understand the precise way in which something is wrong for them to access that information. And so one thing that that this could do, and, and Twitter could use it really effectively, if if they do it sort of, if they're judicious in how they do it and and if they're smart in the the nature of the information that's provided underlying, it is one way to allow ordinary users to very, very quickly understand the context of what the president's saying and to do it in a way that is actually attached to the president's tweet itself. So instead of allowing the fact-checking to sort of exist in a separate and parallel universe in which it only is really there for people who read, out to seek it that that actually it now creates that sort of organic fact check that's right there I think that Twitter that doesn't appear to be precisely their intent, and um, and I think it's a little bit of a missed opportunity to not really really think clearly about sort of how to reduce the the cost and uh, and just penalties to the average person who's just looking to get the underlying facts, and and I, I'm not sure that it's as currently designed is going to be able to do that really effectively. That said, this is one place that that tool. This kind of tool could really make a difference. And so, you know, sort of in the interest of not letting opportunities go to waste, um, I I do think that could be one area in which this could be really beneficial.
2: All right. Let's talk about some place where freedom of speech is actually being suppressed. Ben, while the world is distracted with the pandemic, China is yet again moving in on Hong Kong taking a number of aggressive actions in the past week. This, of course, is following on China's attempts to rein in Hong Kong, which is supposed to enjoy significant autonomy from Beijing for a number of decades still to come. And that, of course, sparked mass protests that we've talked about on the podcast before with our own Sophia Yan. So talk to us about what China is up to now and how is what's going on here different than what has happened in previous months?
1: So I actually just talked this morning to Sophia and to uh Alvin Chung who is a sort of expert on Hong Kong law for the Lawfare podcast. So that should be out shortly and people can listen to that for a sort of in-depth dive into the subject. But uh the basic answer is that two things are happening. One in Beijing, uh the people's congress is set to pass a new national security law for hong kong and that is in the chinese sense of the word national security which includes you know stifling political dissent and anything that is untoward from the point of view of the chinese communist party and uh is a i think important in two ways one is that the substance of the law is potentially very broad and very repressive um, and uh, could really be used to, uh, and I think the, the Chinese Communist Party intends to use it to really come down hard on dissent in Hong Kong. But the second issue, which is a little bit more tectonic, is that this is a Chinese law directly Uh, regulating life in Hong Kong. And the important principle of the Hong Kong autonomy regime was that Hong Kong had its own system and there would be two, one country, but at least until 2047, there were two systems of governance and Hong Kong had its own, maybe influenced by China, but passed by its own uh, city legislature. And this is, you know, a direct assault on that idea and a, and an imposition of a law on Hong Kong uh, directly by the CCP. Uh, so that's the first law. And then the second law, which uh, is actually being considered by the Hong Kong legislature, is a law to criminalize the showing of disrespect to the Chinese national anthem. And this is, I think, a really interesting development because, you know, the Protests in Hong Kong, which began as a, a, a demand and a set of insistence on the part of Hong Kong residents for China to respect Hong Kong's autonomous, relatively rule of law oriented, relatively open society, is increasingly uh, colored by a an independence movement, a separatism, and a real contempt for. Uh, Beijing. And that has manifested itself at a couple of sporting events by people actually booing the Chinese national anthem, which is very threatening from the Chinese Communist Party's point of view. And so this is, a, 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 I think, best understood as a, a a direct attempt to make illegal the the show of non-fidelity to China as such. In response to it all, a large number of people have once again taken to the streets, and uh, we are seeing a renewal of the protests that were going on until they were kind of quieted by COVID-19.
2: Tammy, Secretary of State Pompeo actually just this afternoon made some news on this front, where when he told Congress that the U.S. can no longer call or certify that China is, or sorry, that that Hong Kong is autonomous from mainland China. Talk about the significance of that, what that means, and do you think Pompeo acted too quickly?
0: Thanks, Shane. So, I mean, he was gonna have to make the certification that's required by law on this question of Hong Kong's autonomy. I don't know exactly what the deadline was, but it was coming up fairly soon. And this is required by a law that was passed by Congress at the end of last year, the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act of 2019. That was actually passed in reaction to the massive protests that Hong Kong residents were manifesting over the last year protesting the Chinese attempt to impose other laws, including one that would have extradited automatically to China um, Hong Kong residents who uh, were accused of certain kinds of crimes. And so, you know, Congress was trying to stand up for Hong Kong autonomy, and so they said, If the Secretary of State can't certify that Hong Kong remains meaningfully autonomous, if it doesn't still have this special status, then it shouldn't also have the special trade relationship that it has with the United States, which is different from the broader U.S.-China trade relationship. So basically what Pompeo's declaration does is it triggers the end To that preferential trading relationship for Hong Kong. There are a ton of American companies who have headquarters in Hong Kong or Asian regional headquarters in Hong Kong. There are all kinds of business deals that are structured between the U.S. and China that go through Hong Kong to take advantage of this. So it will have real financial impact and business impact both in the United States and in China. How much impact and how quickly will depend on how the Trump administration decides to implement the change in status. But, you know, this, this was a tool that was given by Congress to the administration, a tool that goes in the category of negative conditionality. In other words, if you're trying to get another government to not do something, you say, if you go ahead and do this, we're going to punish you in the following way. By its very nature, that Kind of tool is like a gun with one bullet in it, and once you've fired the bullet it 's gone. so Pompeo has now made this declaration the trade consequences will be imposed under the law, and it and this was done before China had actually finalized the law that Ben was describing that 's you know being done in a way that overrides hong kong 's own legislative process and will impose these significant constraints on freedom in Hong Kong. So if there was any hope that the United States government could persuade the Chinese or move the Chinese to go slow on this, if there was any hope that mass protests in Hong Kong would lead the Chinese to blink the way they did on the extradition law last year, well, now the United States government has told them, you know what, we're going to punish you right now before you even finish doing what we don't want you to do. And so the incentive for them to change course, I think, is gone. So,
3: Tammy, my my question is sort of we've seen this be sort of the instinctual response of the Trump administration in lots of different contexts, right? This sort of, you know, be aggressive, be escalatory. And, you know... As often as not, what ends up happening is they sort of take the off ramp or the compromise position, right? There, there, there's you know the, the bark is worse than the bite, which is is not to say that's what's going to happen here. But what does an off ramp even look like, right? It, this seems like such an unsustainable situation that short of the Chinese government just kind of saying okay. You guys have a good point. Like, I guess we should just grant Hong Kong autonomy, you know, full autonomy. You know, kind of where do, where do we go from here uh, under the optimistic view of, OK, you know, we've now sort of fired our one bullet here, assuming the United that this doesn't cause China to just completely capitulate, which it seems unlikely to do. So what exactly happens now? I guess that's precisely the danger
0: I see in not waiting for the Chinese to complete this move, not giving them a chance to find their own kind of softening or compromise and then making a judgment from a U.S. perspective about whether that's good enough. Right. The Hong Kong protests are primarily are the main avenue of pressure on the Chinese government. That's What happened last year is that the protests shut down the city. The protests spooked investors and business people doing deals in China. The protests put China in a terrible light internationally, and so they backed off. And the Trump administration isn't waiting to see whether that might happen again. Now, they may have their own good reasons, and I think there are good reasons, to assume that the Chinese government will not be dissuaded this time and that they are hellbent on going ahead and crushing Hong Kong's special status. Still, there is something to be said for waiting for the Chinese to actually go ahead and make the decision before you slap them on the hand for it. In terms of a US off-ramp, I mean, I would have to look at the languages of the of the legislation, but I suppose in principle, if the Chinese somehow reverse course. Pompeo could just recertify to Congress and say, well, circumstances have changed and I said that Hong Kong wasn't autonomous, but now it is again. And then you'd have to unwind whatever trade policy steps you'd taken in the meantime. It would be a little egg on the face, but they, they would probably try to claim it as a victory. I don't think that's what the Trump administration will do. I think going by their typical pattern This is one where we're going to cause them pain and make them beg for us to take it back and it'll get wrapped up in the broader U.S.-China trade uh, negotiation and Hong Kong could easily get traded away.
1: I seldom disagree with my wife completely, but this is one of those times. The broad pattern of U.S. and for that matter British engagement and British engagement here is probably more important than the U.S. because the Hong Kong status is a matter of treaty law between or agreement between China and Britain. But the broad pattern of our engagement on this issue is that we have been way, way, way too deferential over a long period of time and way too cautious. And I think I don't, you know, I have not heard Mike Pompeo's actual speech, but I thought, uh, and I'm, as you know, I am not a big Mike Pompeo fan, but I actually think it is great to for the administration to get out in front of this uh, and make it very clear to China that there will be consequences for this and they will involve the integrity of Hong Kong's status as an investment center and we will take away, if they play this, we will take away the status that enables Hong Kong to be what it is. And, you know, the Chinese are not stupid and they know that that status can migrate to Singapore. They know that there is nothing magical about Hong Kong. And for us to make very clear that yes, you can assert, you can can win this battle, you can assert your authority over Hong Kong, but it will be a Pyrrhic victory. This will be a husk of a rotting shell of Hong Kong is a very important thing to do to make clear what the consequences are. And I commend Mike Pompeo for doing that. And I hope he has some good fudge to celebrate his uh, coming around to the, light, the bright side in addition, maybe he'll
3: host a taxpayer-funded party.
1: Yeah, I think I think, and I would like to like raise a a wedge of of marshmallow fluff fudge to him. a oh, um,
2: shriveled husk of fudge.
1: Yes, exactly. I do think there is one other really important thing that the United States should get out in front of here, and and this is really going to be against the interests and instincts of the administration, but it's really important if you want to put pressure on the chinese on hong kong asylum is a critical part of that and there are 3 million people in hong kong who do not want to live under the chinese communist party and not all of them can go to vancouver and not all of them you know and the british negotiated a weird arrangement when they left where hong kong residents don't necessarily have residency rights in the uk the english speaking democracies who have an investment in Hong Kong need to think about like uh, what our relationship with this population is going to be. And we should all be thinking about asylum as one of the ways that we can help this population and thereby, and by the way, do it preemptively. Don't wait for, don't listen to Tammy and wait until this is all a fait accompli. Do it preemptively. Make clear that when Hong Kong people need places to go, they will have them in in the five eyes.
0: Okay, so I actually don't disagree with my husband as much as he thinks that I do, because everything that he said was what was written in the law. Congress provided the threat. The threat was there. All Pompeo had to do was point to the law. He didn't have to make this call right now. He's now carried out the threat. And once you carry it out, it's not effective leverage anymore. On the asylum point, I couldn't agree more. And actually, the other thing the law does is it makes clear that visas, visa consideration for Hong Kong residents should not uh, harm them if they were arrested by the Chinese for civil liberties activity.
2: All right. I have no segue for Michael Flynn because I feel like he's haunting my dreams.
0: Uh, he's haunting all of us.
2: I feel like we've talked more about Michael Flynn in the past month than maybe, maybe not all the time that he was in trouble, but Michael Flynn. Michael we've Flynn, Flynn just went from more won't go about away. him
0: than he was in office. <laughs> that is
2: 100 hours. we <laughs> true. That's just. There,
3: well, that's a
2: grim exclamation point if I ever saw one. That is just fact. Um, Susan, we've had some new developments in the Michael Flynn case. Uh, A panel of judges has demanded that the judge in his case, uh, in Flynn's case, explain why he paused on the matter and is not granting DOJ's motion to dismiss, which we talked about uh, on a previous podcast and all of its strangeness. Uh, now, FBI Director Chris Ray is announcing that the Bureau will look into how it handled the Flynn matter. And of course, Flynn pleaded guilty to lying to FBI agents, uh, which is what has landed him in the midst of all of this mess. So put this into some context for us here. Is this routine stuff that's happening? Is it to be expected or is the whole Mike Flynn House of Cards, as Trump would probably see it, coming down?
3: Yeah, the Kislyak call was completely and entirely appropriate. Um, and Michael Flynn was railroaded. I, there's just nothing else to say. Totally
2: legal. Totally cool.
3: Totally cool. Um, no. Right. Let's go on to object um, lessons. So... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we're going to talk about Mike Flynn some more before this is over. Um, so look, I, we, just to sort of take a step back as we dive back into the um, refreshing cool pool of, of Michael Flynn uh, insanity, um, right? So, so listeners will sort of recall that uh, the Department of Justice had made a motion essentially to dismiss the charges against Michael Flynn in a context in which there was lots of indication that this was about political interference, you uh, You know, and and essentially based on Flynn's status as, uh, you know, being a political and personal ally of the president of the United States that was bad. That was sort of, uh, you know, there were serious optics issues for DOJ at that point. I mean, there was a real question about uh, what the judge in that case, Emmett Sullivan, was going to do in response. Um, And what Sullivan did in response um, was interesting at the time. So he did two things. So first, what he did was he relied on sort of inherent court authority to say, hey, I need more briefing on this. And and essentially, the argument here is, look, um, DOJ and the defendant used to be in an adversarial position. So I could get both sides of the argument because there were two Sides. Now the government and the defendant have essentially joined the same side. And so I need somebody else to like help me understand the counter-arguments here. Um, then sort of the next day, he he sort of went a step further and he appointed a former federal judge, John Cleason, to serve as sort of an independent lawyer to help him, uh, to sort of help brief him on the arguments. And uh, what happened is Flynn's lawyer, Sidney Powell, then went to the D.C. Circuit, um, essentially asking for the D.C. Circuit to compel Judge Sullivan to dismiss this case, um, sort of arguing that he was biased. Um, the D.C. Circuit, despite sort of the legal standard uh, for mandamus being extraordinarily high, um, the D.C. Circuit responded itself in a very unusual way. This is Everything we've said is incredibly unusual from the, from, from the beginning. The D.C. Circuit has replied in an even more unusual way, saying, that they're asking Judge Sullivan um, within 10 days to respond to Flynn's lawyer's arguments. Um, So Judge Sullivan has now hired a very well-known lawyer, Beth Wilkinson, to sort of represent his view before the the DC circuit. Um, So there are two questions here. Um, One is the sort of the the question at the heart, the legal question at the heart, which is, um, can Judge Sullivan actually refuse to grant the government's motion to dismiss? Um, Is that sort of plausible? That's a complicated question. It's about the... rules of federal criminal procedure and sort of if it's in the interest of the public. And then there's sort of a complicated rabbit hole we could go down. Um, Then there's another question, which is, is the point of what's happening right now for Judge Sullivan to actually get to a place where he denies the motion? Or is the purpose of of what's happening right now for Judge Sullivan to get a complete understanding of what happened here? And and I think that the position we're in right now has really, really bad optics. And, And I think bad optics, for. Sullivan as well, sort of hiring counsel, representing before the D.C. Circuit, appearing as though he's a litigant against the defendant. You know, the the sort of the entire framing that this uh, that the question here was whether or not a federal judge could compel DOJ to prosecute someone. Uh, you know when DOJ didn't want to do that. Um, I think that sort of set us up for the path we're on right now, and and I think it's a really unfortunate one, um, and and one that sort of undermines the the sort of stature of the court, and and even makes people like me, who um, am not at all sympathetic with uh, with Michael Flynn, and i am hugely concerned about what DOJ did, um, feel a little bit uncomfortable about how this is playing out, and so I, I, I think. Uh, the better framing would have been that Sullivan was entitled and is entitled to get a full understanding uh, of of the facts that led to this moment. I think that's what he was attempting to do and instead has sort of been drawn into this litigation posture. Um, I imagine Ben will have strong views on this as well. And and, and Ben, maybe you disagree with me, but this is starting to feel really sort of um, just uncomfortable to me. And I, I mentioned it the first time we talked about it, the idea that the role of the federal judiciary, is to to cram a prosecution or cram a sentencing down the throat of DOJ, that's not really the job of the court. And so the more we get away from the role of the court is to get a full and complete understanding of the facts and conduct of the parties before them and into the role of the court is to ultimately decide if Michael Flynn is going to jail at this point. You know, I the, the more we go down that second path, the the more fraught and complicated and uncomfortable it feels at least to me.
1: I actually agree with that. I think the um the the judge was in an impossible position here, and part of the reason for that was that he handled the case badly and in a manner that was not attractive back At the time of the original Flynn sentencing, Um, you know, when he was when Flynn originally went to sentencing, Judge Sullivan went on a self aggrandizing tirade and forced him to uh, delay the sentencing uh, in a in a fashion that I thought was very inappropriate. And that delay helped facilitate the situation as it has now developed. And so I think Judge Sullivan himself actually bears some responsibility for the fact that Flynn was not sentenced yet and that this whole situation developed. Then, you know, all that said, then Bill Barr pulls this incredible stunt. And I do think it is appropriate for the judge to want an explanation here and want to make sure this is not a corrupt deal that he should not allow to happen but i do think that role is limited and under the case law i think his role here in is a pretty narrow one and so his instinct to find out what's going on i am sympathetic to but his instinct to dictate Whether Flynn gets prosecuted to the extent that he has that, if he has it, is probably not appropriate. And then the bizarre behavior of the D.C. Circuit, which is, you know, really jumped the gun and asked for briefing on uh, something that is, I think, way premature, is itself upsetting. And so I think, you know, the behavior of the Justice Department here is very disturbing. The judge mishandled the case early on, and whether he has mishandled it now again or whether he's, as I think, he's probably just making the best of a bad situation, the judicial handling has been suboptimal, and the court of appeals handling has been suboptimal as well. And so I think what you're seeing is sort of compound mishandling serially, by uh, multiple actors within the system, and it's you know creating a real mess.
2: I, I want to ask just a broader question as we step back, and it's precisely to this this point, Ben, you just made about a real mess. If if you are uh, <clears throat> perhaps an average person, not a listener of this podcast, and not following this as closely as, as we do, it strikes me that if you're watching this whole Flynn saga, it just seems so smeared and irregular and screwy that it, it well might it, it, it raise questions in, in the minds of people of good faith, that there was something wrong from the beginning, and at the very least might kind of throw their hands up at it. Um, I also wonder if that's not kind of what the administration would like to happen. I mean, Susan, what, what, do, what do you think about that? And then respond to some of Ben's points too.
3: Yeah, you know, look, I actually think this is a good sort of opportunity to talk about the other thing you mentioned in in your first question, which is the conduct of uh, the FBI Director Ray, um, who's now decided to open this internal investigation. Right? Sort of, what do you do when you find yourself in this this sort of we're through the looking glass? It's this completely bizarre world how do good actors behave um, and is the best course to not engage at all and throw up your hands or to sort of find your way through it. So what Ray has done um, is now decided to open an internal review of handling the Flynn, of the handling of the Flynn case. And this is really limited. It only covers current employees of the of the Bureau. Um, And I think there's like one person, maybe two people who still work there who this could cover. And what I think this is, is sort of similar to Jeff Sessions handling of uranium one. So remember whenever President Trump was sort of, you know, pounding Twitter about this uranium one scandal and investigate Hillary Clinton? You know, what did Jeff Sessions do? He opened this kind of internal review that was clearly about being able to say he was looking into it, he was doing something, but actually was just kind of trying to bury it. And a little bit, this strikes me as maybe a similar move. This is a way for Chris Ray to sort of say that he's doing something and he's not ignoring it, but it's just kind of putting it into a process that you know, it, you know, either is is going to make a recommendation not to do anything or sort of not be especially consequential. Um, and sort of in the early days and in, in the in our youth innocence of, you know, 2017 and uh, back when when old Jeff Sessions was the attorney general, that seems almost sort of sh- like a shrewd way to handle the president, right? Kind of just process things and, and put things through these sort of ordinary processes and, and make it look like the wheels of bureaucracy are spinning, but, but really you aren't doing anything actually sort of damaging. And I think the lesson we've learned over the intervening three years is, no, that actually is exactly what Trump wants, especially in this circumstance. What he wants is to attempt to create the specter of there being investigations and him having been wronged and his sort of revenge tour against anyone who sort of was involved in the Mueller investigation. And and so I think that this is one of those those ways in which by convincing himself that he's not capitulating to political pressure, that's precisely what he's doing and, and it's going to be used for tremendously damaging ends.
2: All right, let's move on to my damaging ends. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Let's do object lessons.
0: My ends are damaged. I have your ends are
2: definitely you know we all like my ends are damaged right now too. We all need haircuts. My ends justify the means. Oh man, I'm gonna give a special punctuation mark for you today, (laughs) (laughs) Ben. Why don't you show your object first? My object
1: is a 3D printed cannon, which my son made for me uh, as a collateral project of his mask printing project. And Gabriel decided he was going to make for me a 3D printed baby cannon that could actually fire. And yesterday he delivered it to me and I tweeted it. And Twitter erupted in an argument as to whether it looked like A a blue cucumber or B, a dildo.
2: Um
3: good thing we're with, already got the explicit rating. Wow. Which I have to say good
1: was thing very is
2: a family podcast. Was very mature. Um
1: it's Twitter. On the part of all the people who engaged in this argument. Um, I would just like to say that I love my blue cucumber cucumber um baby cannon printed in plastic and i intend to fire it keeping a safe distance when i do and uh of course rational security listeners will have the benefit of a video of it on twitter
2: hold on i'm going to go look at this right now is it on your twitter feed it is it was yesterday oh no that looks like i mean that looks like a microphone Shane. Oh wait, no, no, I it up.
1: <laughs> what What do you think, Susan?
3: <sighs> I I don't even want to weigh in. Look. <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean it though. doesn't
3: not look like a dildo <laughs> is all I'm saying.
2: How does it it doesn't ben it doesn't have an opening. I mean it's I not...
3: I might not have thought that like that that foul thought might not have come into my very pure mind on its own, but once it's been pointed out to me, it's very hard not to see.
1: Well, I honestly would like to point out that all canons can be said to look something like a dildo.
2: No, no. Um, something, and a cucumber. No, something. For that matter. In <laughs> <laughs> so far as they are cylindrical. Next. <laughs> Dear God. This is this, we really have not ventured into the realm of pornography on this podcast.
0: Hey, you see, what just go with uh, it. You? you see the influence it has. It's
2: terrible. Hey, I was just talking about three D printing and
1: cannons.
2: You guys took it in the filthy direction. You, you're the- no Susan. Rescue us from this now, please. Thank
3: okay, you. I have an object lesson as well, um, and it's sort of an old one because I was off last week, um, so I didn't get to do it in a timely manner. Um, but my object lesson is the new chairman of the SSCI not Tom Cotton. And I just would like to congratulate not Tom Cotton as becoming the new chairman after Richard Burr stepped down because that is a win for everybody.
1: And can I ask you, Susan, when you say not Tom Cotton, do you mean that the value of the individual Marco Rubio is not worth speaking about in and of itself?
3: My point was that the only open question when Richard Burr was stepping down from the SSCI was was the chair going to be Tom Cotton or was the chair going to be not Tom Cotton? The fact that it's Marco Rubio means it's not Tom Cotton, and uh, that is object lesson worthy to me. So, Chairman Rubio, you know, fair winds and following seas, and best of luck.
2: All right. Uh, Well, for my object, I'm I'm wishing best of luck, too. I I am doing it. I'm I'm doing a preemptive object uh, because while my object is real and exists, it is currently sitting on a launch pad and has not taken off yet. Uh, So SpaceX plans to at 4.33 p.m. Eastern time, and we're talking to you at 3.30 now, so in 63 minutes. Uh, launch the crew of the Dragon, uh, which is notable because this would be the first time that we have launched American astronauts from U.S. soil since 2011. Wow. We have been hitching rides with Russians for nine years, which was a great thing for diplomacy.
1: Russian interference in our space program.
2: <clears throat> well, we're about to interfere in theirs, buddy. So it goes around, comes around.
3: And Shane, what does the rocket look like? How would you sort of describe it?
2: Like a cannon, <laughs> Susan. It looks like a cannon.
3: Oh, okay, a great. Now I have, a, I have a great picture in my mind. Now, thank you.
2: Excellent, and it's it, and it is going to uh, it, it is actually going to fire. We hope at four thirty three p.m. This is great, uh, listeners. I'm a big space geek. You know, my long term national security objective is to get off this planet, but we'll all be safer somewhere else. Uh, so, yeah. SpaceX, fair wins. Hopefully, next time we talk, uh, we'll have lots of cool footage of a launch. But until then, you guys, that's it. That's it for today. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find, I'm not even going to talk about what you could find at whatever store Ben is putting up at Lawfare. Sexy time.
1: You're making implications here that cast my uh, character into disrepute.
2: Oh, 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 oh. oh i don't have to do that you're, you're taking care of that plenty.
1: the
3: lawfarestore.com is abstinence only <laughs> next thing i
1: know you are going to be tweeting that i killed somebody
2: at our workplace i might tweet that. i did there's no proof that you didn't kill somebody let's just leave it at that all right let's just agree to disagree ben
0: i'm putting a blue exclamation point on that one
2: yeah. No. Speaking of blue
0: exclamation points.
2: Oh, my God. Yeah, what shape are they? Nobody buy merchandise from this man for a week.
0: <laughs>
2: it's been sanitized. Yeah. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please leave a nice rating and review, even after listening to this episode. It really helps us out. and We appreciate it. Share the love, people. Our audio engineer this week was Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. Our show is produced and edited, as always, by Jen Patti Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump and his exclamation point blues band with their delightfully naive version of the Eagles classic Lion Eyes.
0: Very good.
2: Yeah, it's a long one, but, you know, you stuck through it. Good for good get you. out there.
0: It's a romantic uh, song, Shane.
2: Yeah, but it's a delightfully naive. That's why it's, you know. Okay. All
0: right. Sure.
2: I'll, I'll accept that. Let's just let's just go with Sophia Yan's version and let that be our favorite. On behalf of my good friends Ben Wittis, Tamara Hoffman Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget